and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Caliber Corner. It is I, your host, Owen McIntyre, and with me is, as always, well, not as always, he's not on all the shows, <laughs> um, is Riley Jimison. Uh, Riley, how are you? Um, fabulous, man. Thank you for asking. All right. Good. So now we're going to jump into another episode. Uh, where we dive into a certain species in the Collierbrid genre. Um, if you have not listened to the show before, what the hell? This is like episode nine. Where have you been? Um, <laughs> but uh, we're going to kind of explore a species in the Collierbrid uh, classification, uh, kind of dive into it, talk about it, what it's like, how to keep it, what we found about it, natural history, food. Um, if anybody's even keeping it in U.S. herpetoculture, and just kind of get you guys uh, drum up a little bit more uh, love, support, and publicity for a really cool type of snake that's not a boa, a python, or a venomous, deadly creature. Um, so yeah, uh, Riley, what are we talking about today? So this week, we're going to be talking about a species that uh, I wouldn't say is unheard of, but I think people are much more familiar with uh, a similar sister species that we'll, we'll sort of extrapolate some comparisons with later. But this yeah. week's uh, subject of focus is going to be the pearl banded rat snake. Okay. This thing looks... Like, if you had shown me a picture of this animal and told me it was a new morph of mandarin mm -hmm. rat snake, I would have believed you 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they are very similar. So, like I said earlier, throughout this episode, we'll be drawing comparisons. But to conjure up the description of this animal in your head, think of a really small uh, mandarin rat snake. But instead of having, like, because it's almost like they're band-shaped diamonds on their back in times mm -hmm. in at certain ways, this is just straight, like almost triad banding without the triad color. So think of like the type of thin banding with a, a bigger border in the middle, something similar to like milk snakes have that type of banding. Yeah. I was about to say, I was even going to say like somehow like every once in a while you get the uh, Cali Kings mm -hmm. that have the, 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 cause it almost looks like saddles, like with a Jaguar, mm -hmm. but like they go all the way around. So uh, I didn't like that one, but it's almost like a banded Cali King. But if the bands, um had a different color border around them mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's really kind of cool but it does have that mandarin rat snake like striping and stuff on its head and that teardrop yeah so really cool. the bands run the whole body they mm -hmm. they're black bands with that same greenish gold base color so the whole snake is like this greenish gold hue and then you got these bands that little little subsections that chop up that section. And then it almost looks like there's even some black tipping and edging on some of the scales. It looks like you yeah. can get a little bit of yellow highlights coming through. And as you get towards the face, like you said, you get a lot of that Mandarin rat snake look where the bands almost sort of go across the eyes, make a cool eye stripe, a little nose band, and even form almost like a, a head spear that we see in a lot of rat snakes and, and corn snakes and milk snakes and things like that. Um, yeah. but the, the one thing that really stands out to me is how tiny these things are. We're talking a hundred centimeters to 130 centimeters and, and American, you know, non-metric measurements. That's like, that's under three feet. That's a small snake. That's a really okay. small colubrid. Now that they are also referred to as the, the Szechuan rat snake, um, the, just the pearl rat snake, but yeah, they're. They're very, very interesting. They look like they would be a, a kind of a cryptic, elusive species just by looking at them. You, they have this mysterious air about them, and it's probably because of those black lines going through the eyes and the teardrops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So what are we looking at as far as their uh, what what what's the what's the Latin? So the Latin is uh, Euprepiophis perlacea, and uh, I was I had to go back and double check my research to make sure I was not um, doing research under a, a the wrong name or an old uh, yeah. nomenclature because they I was seeing synonymous terms such as elafe, um, you know when we think of the mandarins elafe mandarina. Um, yeah. you know, so I had to go double check. So I basically did my research under two, two avenues. I was looking up under LFA and then I was looking up under what they're currently recognized as, which is Euprepiophis. Um, and, and so it seems like it was very recently changed as recently as 2014, um, to Euprepiophis. Um, it's kind of gone back and forth and it, it also doesn't look like this species has been known to science for all that long. Some of the earliest name documentations come from Steniger in 1929, which seems like a long time ago because you and I weren't alive then. But like as, not, as far yeah. as some of the species that we know in herpetoculture that have been around for over 250 years, that's a fairly recently discovered animal. Is this the only member of the Euprepiosis family that is not? Because, I mean, looking at it, it's the Japanese forest rat snake, Mandarin rat snake, and then the uh, Szechuan rat snake. Mm -hmm. It's like that, that's it That's it in the family. Yeah, so and I'm not sure if they gave it this own old designation to just be a monotypic genus or if there's further research coming down the pipeline that might change some of the other members. But it seems like they're the only – I mean, I don't know of any other Euprepiosis. Well, I mean, no, I mean, like the the mandarins and the Japanese forest rat snake are in Euprepiophis with the Szechuan snake, but I think Japanese forest snakes are in U.S. herpetoculture, and I think mandarins are as well. Mm -hmm. And I would say they're definitely more prevalent. We've heard about them, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah, I would say this is like the rare oddball of that whole family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're they're definitely close to being unheard of. Um, so yeah, they're they're very cool. Okay. So like you said, there was the last kind of real setup was 1929. Mm -hmm. And then it just seems to have just been shifted around the way, like with the family, like it wasn't, nobody really went out of their way to rename it or reclassify it. It's just as the family changed. Yeah. It changed with it. Okay. Yeah. It seems like it's always either been Elafe or Euprepiophis. And I would imagine that's probably just, um, some nomenclature disagreement based on different people researching and acknowledging what is most current or relevant as you know how scientists get they yeah. will the, the all these latin names are based on either attributes or natural history things for the animal because it, it essentially describes this animal uniquely from other ones but it sounds like there's some disagreement on whether or not a laffe should be used or if this resurrected euprepiophis um, nomenclature needs to stay um, because you, you can research them under both and get the same information. I mean, you'd think after a certain point with DNA, uh, results of the different species that you're going to start getting to the point where people are either going to be unable to really like continue to segment or be going to start clumping things together mm -hmm. just because of what is genetically close. Mm -hmm. But then people are going to disagree what where you draw the line as far as adding a subspecies to species or something else. Yeah. So it never ends. All right. Yep. I know we already described that what we're looking at. Um, 
What does the IUCN red list say? So the IUCN red list, surprisingly enough, does have this this species up there because there are species mm -hmm. that you can find out there that exist that the IUCN red list has not even evaluated. So they're right. not like that unheard of, but they're only a step above that. Uh, and they are listed as endangered. So Jeez. they are a small, elusive, somewhat recently discovered species. And if, considering we don't know much about them and haven't found a lot about them or seen them a lot, there's not a lot of specimens, you know, documented. Endangered status seems to warrant and, and fit that that animal quite nicely. Are there, are there any AZA or some sort of zoological accredited breeding species survival plants? Uh, there are not specific AZA SSPs in place for them. That being said, there are um, labs and, and institutions over in these pro Southwest provinces in China that have some individuals. And there was uh, a, a recently documented successful breeding and egg production and hatching of babies in 2017. So it's very, very new to um, okay. Even just being established within a, sort of like a, an attempted figuring this out survival of the species For approach. Species survival plan. I mean, they're still in the process of grabbing wild animals and attempting to breed them. I mean, this is and what and here's the double edged sword. I mean, th this is how rough scales happen. Mm -hmm. Like it would like so now it's almost like do you want to turn it over to private hands herpticulture to really get the species going again right i mean the you you have a ton of breeders that have had success with things like mandarin rat snakes do you think they'd be able to reproduce these guys yeah i i think that uh i think it just needs time and people to to work with them and figure them out and then a lot of field study to evaluate how large and extensive the wild populations are because then they can get a direction they can get a heading that says okay they're very extensive in this area or they're they're fragmented into these tiny little pockets so we need to bring some into herpeticulture to sort of figure this out to then help conservation efforts because they're they do exist in one part of uh the sichuan province in southwest china where there is a little bit of land protection going on and some species conservation work over there and we oftentimes see um, how conservation work can kind of have umbrella effects and benefits for other species that aren't necessarily the focus of such efforts. And I think um, this is one of those species that's kind of getting uh, the the tertiary benefits of some land protection there. It's just, I mean, again, like I know, I, 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 and I know you and I both come from, you know, have worked in zoological programs and this, that, and the other thing. And I know SSPs and things like that. And we're both in agreement that no one should own a tiger. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> it's, it's almost like for these things, it's like, I, I think this would be a species like the rough scale python that would really benefit from being in some private hands. I'm not, and, and to just reproduce the species, right? keep it going. And it's not like it's going to be mixed and matched or whatever the hell, but it, it it it's definitely something that it's almost like it, it captivity would help the species yes um but i don't think it should just be unleashed upon u.s herpticulture it's like i kind of wish it was kind of maybe brought into some different azas and then you know once the species is secure then yeah why not let them play with yeah. it but it it would definitely be something i think would be very cool so yeah, it seems like right. some folks over in china that are focused on 
uh, studying their their local herb species out there are doing exactly that um, as we okay. speak, which sounds really cool. It's glad to hear that uh, you know there's a lot of people working on that, and and it's one of those you know we're, we're very spoiled with a lot of the species we have in herpiculture right. now because the people who've established them put in that legwork, and so if you know we have all these tools. And we still are just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg. You know, it, you can go on iNaturalist and look at observations of any animal anywhere in the world as long as somebody's taken a photo of it and uploaded it. This species does not have that designation. You cannot just go to iNaturalist and find a photo of this animal. There is no default photo here. There are people that have photographs, hence why you and I are looking at one right now on these show notes. Yeah. And they do exist in, in photographs. You can research it, but you're only going to find a handful of these photographs. Um, and so if you, so I did exactly that. I went to I, I naturalist and I went to just, you know, follow some leads and I clicked at the map. I zoomed in on this province in China where they're found and I zoomed in as much as I could. Just, I wanted to see how much detail would be captured. And I got to a point where it would eventually just blank out the topo map and not really show anything. Yeah. So, but if you, if you zoom out just enough and you can see the whole province or at least a good chunk of it on a topographical map digitally, you will realize yeah that that whole area they live in is crazy mountainous. Like it's mountains and gullies and mountains and gullies every which way all over the place. There is no flat area in there. So it's a it's a it's probably a pretty remote, uh, rugged amount of terrain. The few notes I could find from the IUCN and iNaturalist suggested that it was uh, mountainous, forest, like rocky forest. So it's probably pretty tough going to get in there just to even study them, which would, you know, explain it, it help and it would help and hinder which means it helps nobody's going to go trumping through their habitat and mess it up mm -hmm. but it also hinders is that we can't get in there to get an accurate you know study of what the hell's going on in there very so, similar to rough yeah. scales yeah. yeah so yeah these things are so, they have that similar level of uh, allure and elusiveness to them well now here's my thing is do you think that the endangered species tag is premature Yes. And I think it's a safe thing to do prematurely. If you're going to do the opposite and say it's fine, I think you open up an ethical doorway <laughs> yeah, for people to go exploit it till it is actually. If you were wrong, it's, yeah, that, that's a bad idea. Okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think the endangered status comes as a result of uh, the remoteness of the area, the isolated habitat, and the newness of the species with as few specimens as they have known to herpetoculture. So I think it is a safe uh, uh, evaluation for the time being. Okay. So now I know with that studies and lack thereof and yada, yada, yada. Um, what are we thinking just by looking at it? Kind of. So, yeah. Go on. Diurnal behavior. What are we looking yeah. At? So this is where we're going to have to use a lot of evidence-based husbandry. Yes. Yeah, um, guys, if you're listening and you're screaming, we're taking our best guess based off what we can see and the fact of what Riley and I have had interactions with and what we think yeah. based off all these other things. It could be completely fucking wrong, mm -hmm. but you're welcome to disprove us. Yeah, like, it's please exactly. Everything, everything starts yeah, somewhere so, until somebody else has the opportunity to figure it out and dispute it. It's I a, challenge you to go to China and study these things and prove me wrong. Do it. I hope, so, I hope somebody jumps on that, that study and takes it to a whole nother level because 
you know, people can only do so much. So, yeah. um, so yeah, we're going back to the comparison with the, the Mandarin rat snakes and okay. I've never kept Mandarin rat snakes. I know people that have, and I'm familiar with some of their aspects of husbandry and care and kind of how they behave. Uh, you probably are more familiar with them than I am given you, you seem to have much more of a, an extent, a more extensive history with Asian rat snakes more so than myself, but Uh, they they can tolerate the cold so much better than other snakes. And that seems to be a common thread a lot across a lot of, uh, of Asian reptiles over there. Well, if you're telling me that their, their main habitat is mountainous regions, I would say, yeah, because I bet you it gets warm in those gullies, but if you're caught on top of like a little bit higher elevation, when it gets nighttime, Mm -hmm. it's going to get cold. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. Cold, rainy. Right. So maybe these things, and that's probably why they're also so small and slender, is that they're going to try to find cracks in the ground and the earth to hide um, and be able to do so. But you're still, your temperature is going to drop like hell while you're trying to figure that out. And we know mandarin rat snakes like to to burrow and hide under a lot of the detritus and foliage and things underground. They're not quite like subterranean per se. Um, but they do rely on ground cover for shelter. So I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to expect that these animals would do really well with a, a terrestrial lifestyle, a lot of leaf litter, a lot of cover overhead. Um, they probably experience very cold winters. I would imagine they brumate. Um, mm. I, I would imagine, like you said, the small size is advantageous because if the, the climate is harsh, and the region is is harsh as far as what's available. Resources are probably scarce, so yeah. you know, smaller body to sustain is much more efficient. That's something I learned in Australia, and then was confirmed in Texas that if you're a slim-bodied snake and a small-bodied snake, you're that way because your habitat can get cold very fast, and you need to get into rock crevices or shelter mm-hmm. that, that where the temperature is where you're comfortable. Right. So, right. you know, we didn't see any rock rattlesnakes because we went to Texas and it got really, really cold and they were all deep within the rock surface where it was still 70 something degrees and warm, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the same way in all, and it's reverse in Australia. We didn't see many stuff until the sun went down because nothing's coming out of the rock crevice because it's 110 degrees. Right. So they're going to be deep down in the rock crevices where it's like 60, 70 and nice and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that these guys are small slender because the out the surface is going to get cold as hell, but you need to be able to tolerate those temperatures because uh, you may not have a bunch of cracks and rocks or mountainous caverns or something to get into. So you have to hide under, like you said, detritus and stuff like that to kind of keep warm. Mm-hmm. So yep. yeah, yeah, they probably live a very opportunistic lifestyle where they have to capitalize on shelter very quickly, limited sun rays and warmth very quickly. Um, it's, there's probably a lot of rainfall there. So, you know, they probably have to have a lot of coping mechanisms for a harsh climate. Now, are you thinking like, cause that's the weird thing with the mandarins is that the color is so insane. Um, is it a, a camouflage thing or do you think it's just like bright warning kind of deal? Maybe try to flash off almost like a, a Scarlet King snake or something like that? Or what are you thinking? Well, so I think the the earthy sort of green gold color probably lends itself to some of the natural like leaf litter and brown sort of organic colors mm-hmm. that we see in forest floors. And then okay. banding 
I, I always think about how shadows. yeah shadows yeah. and like when a abandoned animal makes a flee away like a darting escape from something a predator has mm-hmm. a really visually skewed hard time of figuring out where the animal starts and stops and finishes and where it's going and which way because mm-hmm. these bands are just like tick, 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 and just all of a sudden it's gone and it, it right. takes your brain a second to process you know what's going on so the banding helps break up that animal and probably it does have to worry about certain predators out there and, you know, being small and on the ground. Um, it, it, camouflage is going to be its best friend, also being small and elusive. Um, so, yeah, I would imagine that the, the banding and that cryptic coloration allows it to try and get brief amounts of sun fully exposed mm-hmm. but blend in nicely, but then also have yeah. the ability to uh, take a, and make a quick escape without being easily caught. I would imagine there's something yeah. going on there. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, if it goes on, like, a small shrub or bush or something like that, it would still be blending in and, like, the stick shadows and mm-hmm. stuff like that would kind of make it almost invisible. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Um, and then it would get that much-needed sunlight. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's my thought as well. Yeah, it's very cool. So, um, I know you said that we – that it they were bred in 2017, and obviously they're egg layers. Mm-hmm. Um I, I guess, did they have any number of how many eggs were laid in the clutch? Uh, there were no details about how many eggs, but given their size, I bet you it's probably fewer than eight, and they're probably small, oblong eggs. Okay, like a like a cocci or a mandarin or something Yeah, like that. I, and I would bet you, um, given their size and probably some seasonal things, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it's a species that if they do well, they could double clutch. Um, but mm. probably, yeah, just have a handful of, of good size oblong eggs, uh, once, maybe twice a season. And I mean, we're, we're, I know mandarins are somewhat small, but we're looking at rodent feeders, maybe even frogs, stuff like that. Probably. Yeah. I would imagine that if they're that small, um, small rodents, small frogs, amphibians, geckos, things like that. I, I would expect given the their diminutive size, they have to be either generalist feeders for very small abundant prey or ha- or there's something that's abundant in small sizes and quantities out there like tadpoles or something like that. But honestly, we just don't know. Mm. You know, it okay. seems that the adults um, that are in the study over in China have acclimated to whatever their captive diet is. I'm sure it's, you know, rodents and whatever they have access to. So something's working. Um, but yeah, they didn't, there wasn't much detail that I could find about what they've been documented as far as gut contents or what the, the animals that were in the study were even feeding on or even, yeah, there's just like not that much information out there. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I mean, this lifespan, that's something else we'd have to be just guessing on. But based off of other Asian rat snakes and, you know, other smaller collier breeds, I think we're falling into that, like, 10 to 15 to possibly 20. Yeah, maybe. maybe. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I think that's not out of the, the stretch of that's not a. I would say that's not a horrible stretch. No. I mean, I, it almost seems like smaller collier breeds and, like, uh, we're going to call it, like, category corn snake. Mm-hmm. If it's in the same kind of size and length of a corn snake, it's about, you know... 10 to 20. Yeah. If it gets bigger in like the Colubri or uh, sorry, Cribo range, it, you can start getting into like 30s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it's just the unknown where it's like, if you get above 30, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They're, they're uh, quite elusive at this point in herpetoculture. So we just don't know. That's so weird. Yeah. 
Why do you think they're they're they have not been in like I, I, we know for a fact they're not in the hobby? Well, we know for our we should fact, we should assume they're not in the hobby. We assume they're not in the hobby. Yeah. We don't know. Basically, we, we've not heard anything. We couldn't find anything. If you're somebody out there who has a pair, congratulations. You have a endangered species. I don't know how you did this, yeah. but good job. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're allowed to have it. Yeah. But <laughs> basically, we're they're unknown if they're in U.S. horticulture. We're assuming no. Yes. Um, but it just seems like with everything else, like mandarins, cockside, um, uh, bamboos, other other Asian rat, small Asian rat snakes that were considered extremely popular mm. and extremely rare and extremely expensive at a certain time before they were all kind of figured out and bred readily because people were stopped keeping them like Western snakes. Mm. Um, you'd think these animals would be right in there, but you think maybe it's just because of their remote habitat that nobody ever got down there to find a couple. Yeah. I would imagine the remoteness of location plays a role and who knows we could, you know, we could be completely wrong and find out that like years ago when they were actually bringing things in from China. Cause I don't believe it brought a bunch. Yeah. Maybe yeah. some snuck in and they just never were given the time of day. We see that all the time. You know, when a couple of something similar comes in, the flashiest, prettiest one gets the most attention and the, the normal less, you know, wow ones get kind of swept up. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, let's say they brought in five individuals and then, you know, people tried them, but it was in that one phase when we were still trying to figure out mandarins and other types of, you know, Asian colubrids mm -hmm. and five animals turns to four animals, four animals turns into three animals, three animals turns into two animals and both those animals are males. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, and then that's it. I wouldn't be surprised if, if to uncover something like that had happened in the, you know, the earlier 50s, 60s, 70s, when stuff like that was just kind of everything was happening, but nobody really knew what was going on sort of thing. And now it could be a species that, you know, makes a recovery. If there's research efforts in place over there in China and there's captive breeding and studying going on in a laboratory setting, you know, it might not be that big of a stretch to think that somewhere in the next 10, 20 years, somebody might be able to import some from this captive population in China into zoological institutions. You know, who knows how that trajectory could go, but um, knowing that there well, are the people problem, working on it, it's possible. Well, the problem with that is, is now you have to get the a zoological institution to, to feel like they're, it's worth their, their time of day. Like, and you money, know, um, and export is and not money. Cheap. Exactly. So, I mean, let's put it this way. Owen Pelly pythons are on the AZA list. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to bring them in. Why? Because they don't care. Yeah. Because having a giant gray python is not something that they feel they want to waste an enclosure space on. Now, I'm saying this, and there might be some zoological institutes that are chomping at the bit and really want to do it, but can't get the board to agree sure. to spend the money and yada, yada, yada. Sure. But it's just one of those things where these things could appear on an AZA list, but find me a zoo that's going to be willing to take that on and bring them in. Yeah. It, just, it's rare. And here's the other part is that you, the zoo takes the time, the money to, to build the enclosure, get the permits, import the animals, start the breeding program. And then somebody actually goes out there and does a study and finds out that these things are nowhere near endangered. That's really hard to get to. Yeah. Then what have you done? So, yeah, it's uh, it's to be determined. You know, I think, I think we've got several examples of species that have had similar trajectories to this species that have found their way into herpetoculture, at least in small numbers. So I wouldn't count it out, but it does seem to be a species that needs 
either a zoological champion to really spearhead bringing it into the hobby or into zoos and really furthering that, or these folks who are currently working with them over in China to have the motivation and, and the desire to do exactly that. Um, you know, they might just be doing it to, for wild repatriation and maybe they know more than what evidence is out there and it's still part of their research and they don't want to put it out there. And maybe it's for protection of the species. Um, you know, who knows? Right. Poaching is always ever present. So yeah. who knows? Who knows, man? It's, it's like, we don't, this species hasn't even existed to herpetoculture for a hundred years. So yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's this episode of Call Your Bird Corner. And uh, I kind of wish we were dropping off on a little bit of a lighter note, but everybody, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> so um, Stay hopeful. Uh, yeah. So Riley, what are we talking about next time? So next time, um, it's rather topical and popular these days, but the next species that I wanted to really focus on uh, is the false water cobra. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Something else I had. Yeah. All right. So that'll be next Next time is the False Water Cobra. Uh, just to let everybody know, the Culliver Corner is a proud member of the Morelia Python Radio Network with shows like Carpet Cliff Notes, Carpets and Coffee, Humans of Herp the Culture, Student of the Serpent, and the original. Morelia Python Radio, the original. Uh, you can go check all those shows out on the channel. Also look up Morelia Python Radio Network on Instagram and Facebook. Also, go join the Patreon and check out the Teespring store for uh, merchandise from Rogue Reptiles, E.B. Morelia, all the Northeast Carpet Fest t-shirts, as well as some cool stuff from Carpets and Coffee. And we're going to try to get some uh, Collierbird Corner stuff in there as well. Um, <laughs> we might even do a picture of one of these guys, and it's just ha it has a sign that says, have you seen <laughs> so, That's <laughs> a good idea. I like that one. So, yeah, we'll figure that one out. So, uh, yeah, we'll put some stuff out there for you guys. Uh, and uh, we'll catch everybody back for the next episode for False Water Cobra. Thanks, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Adios. Adios.